Let's pray together. Father, how amazing and wonderful that we can call you Father. That you have come close to us. That in Christ Jesus, you have adopted all who cry out and lean on him and trust him. Adopted us into your own family. Father, would you make that reality known to us who have trusted Christ and to those that are still seeking to understand. Would you open all of our eyes anew. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this first series... uh, that we've been on on Providence uh, is coming in one sense to an end this morning as we have been working our way through Genesis 37 through 50 and we come to chapter 50 uh, this morning. But before we move into Advent, I'm going to extend it uh, just a little in a couple of particular ways Uh, on the 17th and uh, the 24th. We're going to look at uh, two other key passages in Scripture and see how they fit into the flow of what we're bringing to a conclusion this morning. Uh, The first is the passage in Exodus where God gives Moses the ten words. And I want you to see God's ten words to Moses as gospel words. Uh, We've had a tendency in the church and perhaps in the last, I don't know how many decades or score years to put it, but to see the Old Testament as... uh, Uh, The Testament of law and the New Testament is the Testament of grace. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, And I want you to see that the ten words that God gave to Moses are words of grace and for people who know the covenant of grace from the beginning to the end, though the fullness of that covenant uh, doesn't come to us until really Christ's second coming, but uh, in foundational, earnest, down payment ways with Christ's walk on the earth and his bodily death for our sins and his resurrection. And so on the 24th, we're going to look at the disciples' prayer. Uh, You can call it the Lord's Prayer if you want, but it really is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples uh, to pray as uh, a model prayer. I want you to to see some insights into that prayer as, as a gospel outline. It, too, really is the gospel, because the gospel is both, on the one hand, simpler than we think and can only be understood with God opening our eyes. On the other hand, the gospel, which is the coming of God incarnate, is bigger than we can ever fully understand. And I think when we put God's ten words together with the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in the next two weeks, uh, we'll see how God's wonderful providence has been working salvation. But this morning, I want us uh, to look at promises kept and presence promised. Promises kept. How has the providence of God kept the promises that are given before the chapters that uh, we have been looking at? And then how is his presence promised in new ways? And how do we get to where the New Testament takes us that all the promises of God Find their yes in Christ. Words from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, which we'll look at 
briefly in our, our final point. So as we dig in this morning, uh, before we read some of the text again in pieces as we've been doing, just a, a prelude of how we got to chapter 50 since we stopped in 45 uh, in essence last week. In Genesis 46, 2 through 4, I'm not going to take the time to read it, I just want to remind you that God tells Israel, the name he gave Jacob, God tells Jacob to go down to Egypt, the one thing that Jacob didn't want to do, didn't think he was supposed to do, but when God tells him to go, he goes. And God promises that he will make Jacob's generations into a great nation, and even more so, God promises, I will go with you down to Egypt. Does that ring any bells in those of you who know the scripture well? He promised Moses when he took the people out of Egypt, I will go with you. And Moses says, if you won't go, I won't go. So it's a big thing to Jacob to have God say to him, I will go down there with you and I will bring you up again. And Joseph, your son, whom you thought was dead, his very hands will close your eyes when you die. What incredible words of, of comfort. You could almost end the book of Genesis right there because it's such a powerful image of the promises to the patriarchs fulfilled to Jacob the third, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in Genesis 48, verse 14, Jacob does something really fascinating. He adopts Joseph's Egypt-born sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in essence, taking them away from Joseph and making them his own. And we know them as part of the ten tribes of Israel. But God hasn't revealed exactly why he did that. Uh, but if you remember that uh, uh, Manasseh was the firstborn, if you've read over that part of the text, uh, he should have been the prominent one. And he was the one whose name means uh, to cause to forget. And the context says that uh, Jacob named him that because he'd lost everything. He'd lost his family. He thought he was never going to see them again. And now God is providing for him in Egypt. So Manasseh is to forget and Ephraim is to bless. God, you're blessing me here in Egypt. Joseph has kind of outwardly at least turned his back on his past. Though in the chapters we've been studying, we find out his heart hadn't been turned backwards at all. His heart was longing for what happened. In Genesis 49, uh, I urge you to read through it sometime. It's a beautiful poetic chapter in Genesis where Jacob uh, is the prophet, even as Abraham was a prophet. And there were prophetic words with Isaac, the other patriarch. And in chapter 49, Jacob blesses his sons with the formal blessings of speaking to their future. And in verses 3 through 7 in particular, Reuben, who is the firstborn, loses preeminence as the firstborn because he defiled his father's bed, sleeping with one of his father's wives. And Simeon and Levi, who are the second and thirdborn, are rebuked, and their judgment from their father is to be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. And if you know Israel's history, you know that pretty soon the southern tribes aren't really Judah and Simeon, they're just Judah. Judah just kind of got absorbed. And though Levi and the Levites became very important in their boldness, because of their harshness and their violence and their anger, the judgment came, and they were scattered 
with blessing throughout all of Israel and given 48 cities and pastures uh, as the priesthood of Israel. But as with Cain, as with Ishmael, as with Esau, as with Ur, their privilege is lost by their sin. There's judgment and discipline on them. And in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, Judah, the fourthborn, receives Jacob's greatest blessing, and he is proclaimed as none other than the lion from whom the scepter shall not depart. And we've talked about this. I don't want you to forget it, that uh, this story in Genesis 37 through 50 of the generations that came from Jacob is not just about Joseph in a big way, but about Judah. Because Judah is, by the Spirit of God, is a part of the people of promise, sanctified and devoted to his Father and God. And this blessing that he gets is the fruit of a heart that God has called. And then in 49, 22 through 26, Joseph gets the second greatest blessing and indeed the promise uh, of land amongst uh, the tribes in a special place. With that being said, I want us to look at uh, the last few verses of 49 and then we'll mainly be in chapter 50. Jacob dies and gives commands to his son. Follow along in Genesis uh, 49, beginning with verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, but that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. We don't know how many of the 70 were the embalming. Uh, it doesn't spell out all of the detail. But we see Joseph honoring the traditions of the Egyptians because he is one of them, second in command of Egypt. But he's really identified much more with the traditions of the Hebrews who don't go through all of that embalming and practice fairly quick burials. Verse 4, And when the days of weeping for Jacob were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, 
which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. We have just read why I have called the first main point promises kept. Uh, How many times do we hear about this field and this cave and that it was bought? It is a reminder. Those words are there for a reason that there is land in the promised land that belongs to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They have a place there. Jacob left there with a promise from God to go back there. And all of this is about the promises of God that came first to Abraham when it was promised that he would not only get that land in the right day, but through that land and his family, he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Promises kept. Verses 14 through 21. Let's read those words. After Joseph had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Let me pause for just a moment. Uh, They didn't just notice that their father was dead. (laughs) They knew he was dead when they put him in the cave uh, in the land of promise. But circumstances have changed. They're now back in Egypt and there is no father. And Jacob, the brother whom they sold into bondage, is now in charge of all of Egypt under Pharaoh. And they're remembering our father is dead. What is Jacob going to do to us? And they're so afraid of what he will do that they sent a message to him. Did you notice that? Every phrase is important. They didn't just say, let's go talk to Joseph. Uh, They sent an intermediary, which is a very real part of uh, uh, the Middle Eastern culture of the day and probably two-thirds of the world today. Intermediaries, mediators are a really big thing if you want to get anything done, but that's another lesson. And they say, uh, your father gave this command before he died. Uh, Did you note that the narrator... uh, Moses, by the Holy Spirit, doesn't say whether uh, Jacob really gave this command or not, and we really don't know. It's conceivable that he did, but it's also very conceivable that the brothers are writing a good story, trying to put themselves in the best light with Joseph. Verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil, because they did evil to you, and now... Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Not only did they sin against him, but they sinned against God, they're acknowledging. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Think about all of the things that had happened to Jacob, all of the things that had happened to Joseph, all of the things that had happened to the brothers. Uh, I ran across this uh, quotation from Corey Tenboom. Uh, maybe a few of the younger among us don't know her story, and I can't tell the whole thing, but part of a Dutch family who hid uh, many Jews and rescued many Jews in their house, and the Tenboom family finally sent uh, to the Third Reich camps themselves, and most of them died. Uh, Betsy, Corey's sister, lived for quite a while uh, in the camp but died and Corey was the only one who escaped and even in her later years she was confronted uh, with one of the guards from the camp that she remembered and he remembered her when she was speaking one evening and he had become a Christian and he came to her to ask her forgiveness. Can you imagine that moment? It's no wonder that Corey passes on words like this to us. This is what the past is for. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives, is the perfect preparation for the future that only he can see. It's the perfect preparation for the future that only God can see. So whether you think about what's going on at UPC or you think about what's going on in your family or you think about what's going on in our nation or other nations of the world, God is not surprised by any of it. And for his people, he is knitting and weaving a plan to shape them, to sanctify them, to stir their devotion to him and their devotion to others, loving God and loving the neighbor. And as Joseph and Judah and the brothers are maturing in their life of faith in the covenant of grace that God has given to Israel, uh, their father Jacob in chapters 47 and 49 rises to his greatest heights. His sons honor him. Pharaoh honors him. And in chapter 47, verse 7, uh, I was born in 1947, so I like remembering 47. So, uh, In 47, 7, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Because who's the greater, Pharaoh or Jacob? Jacob. Not only is Joseph the one who mentors Pharaoh in how to save Jesus, how to save Egypt, excuse me. But here we have this incredible man who's growing up in the Lord. Whereas Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac's later years showed weakness. Jacob and Judah and Joseph all show growing devotion to God and one another. As you think about these chapters, remember that all three of those major characters, Jacob, Judah, Joseph, show growing devotion to God and to their family and to their neighbor. Um, in case I don't come up uh, with 
another time in another sermon to say this to you. Uh, I think one of the things that we need to make a connection to in our thinking as uh, believers in our day is that the word sanctification is not first and foremost a moral word in terms of a list of commandments. It is first and foremost a relational word of being set apart, being sanctified back to the purposes for which we were created. It is a relational word that stirs devotion. To be sanctified is to become devoted more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His Father and to the Spirit. To become more devoted to your family, to the church family. If that's not happening, I don't care how moral you are by other biblical commandments, you're not growing in the sanctification because the Lord Jesus loves His body and He laid down His life for it and we are to do the same. This chapter is so fascinating, and I can only say in passing, Bruce Waltke points out that uh, in chapters 49 and 50, uh, the Hebrew word for grave or bury is said 14 times. It's pretty amazing for two chapters. The word father, 15 times, because it's so important, the honoring of the fathers that is going on there. And the word that we know uh, uh, in the word kavod, Glory, heaviness uh, is used uh, a great number of times, two, five or six. And we saw that Joseph, when his father is dead, falls on his father's face and weeps and kisses him. And it fulfills the promise that Joseph will put his hand on Jacob's eyes and close them, being present there within his death. Um, But the wonderful thing that uh, I must not emphasize just once, so a second time before we move on, uh, Joseph says to the brothers, your fears of what I might do to you are groundless because the key idea in this chapter that's at the heart of the whole story is that through sinful men, God works out his saving purposes. And uh, Abraham had two sons. Uh, they... Uh, did not get on well together. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They did not get on well together. But the real healing comes with all of these sons of Jacob, doesn't it? There's a picture uh, of a coming together of, in, of all places, Egypt. A reconciliation, not through the arbitration of a third party, but uh, as uh, a man named Jacob, last name, a commentator says, but through the inner transformation of those who had hated. And after all the anger and the scheming and the division, the family pulls together, united as they see God's sovereignty and God's gracious covenant as greater than their foolishness and their bitterness. Promises kept and fulfilled. Uh, how wonderful that it's God the Father who puts it all together. Uh, and, and it's when we pull together and work together uh, that things fit together. It takes more than one of us. It's not just Joseph that is the hero. Uh, pastors are not patriarchs. Uh, pastors are not prophets like Jacob who became Israel. Every once in a while I run across churches that uh, somehow, even though they think they're New Testament churches, are uh, Old Testament churches because they follow the Moses principle. The pastor is the Moses. I can tell you story after story uh, uh, of a church member daring to criticize a pastor uh, for something and uh, 
an officer of the church rebuking a friend of mine by saying, how dare you touch God's anointed? I want to go, oh. It doesn't mean pastors aren't to be shown respect. Please don't forget that. (laughs) The office is worthy of respect. We give honor where honor is due. But all of us together humble ourselves before the Lord. And and God knows the bumping into one another that's been going on in the comings and goings of UPC. So this is another time to remind ourselves that uh, the hope of God's presence, whether in the church or with those that are going to be in Egypt for a while in our text, uh, uh, is, is at the heart of everything. So let me race quickly to our final point. Think of the scripture and think of how Genesis begins and ends. Adam and Eve are tossed out of the garden, this place of the presence of God and the promise. And the godly line through Adam and Seth and Jacob uh, is going to a new place of promise, a new place of God's presence, and that's the final section that we're going to look at this morning. Promises kept and presence promises, promised. Uh, God's uh, bookends, I'll say more about that just in a moment. Uh, There are some bullets, uh, I think, that I put on your outline. I may have added to them just a bit, but uh, uh, think about... uh, the realities of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God creates man in his image, male and female he creates them, to multiply and fill the earth, and he puts them in uh, the garden. In chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Uh, we, we in our chapters have been looking at the generations of Jacob. The first time that word toledot in the Hebrew is used in Genesis is these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. Heavens and the earth. This is what God brings. He puts a man into the garden in which God walks back and forth from heaven, walking with Adam. This is the first temple, the first garden, the presence of God there amongst his people in the garden. And the trees spring up, pleasant to the sight, good for food, including the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Did you notice, uh, and I hope the scripture reading will ring in your ears, we're going to close with those words uh, in just three or four minutes, um, that uh, there is a river in Eden watering the garden and dividing into four rivers that spread out amongst the earth. The man works the garden with the woman. She and he, instead of spreading the knowledge and worship of God, are deceived and rebel. Don't trust God. Don't trust his word. And judgment and promises are given, and they're banished from the garden with the cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because banished from God, they are banished from the tree of life. That's how... The book of Genesis begins. Uh, a concept that I'll probably touch on again somewhere along the road, but uh, I like to call it God's bookends. Uh, we'll see it this morning before we finish uh, with the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation, uh, but it's very helpful to look at the front of the book and the back of the book. I like to think of them as the bookends. Uh, often you don't understand a scripture book, and sometimes it's more obvious than others. If you don't look at the beginning of the book and you don't look at the end of the book, and understand what melody, what melodic line flows from one place to the other. Genesis begins with the man and woman in the garden, with God walking with them. God's ending is anything but the anticlimactic death and dying and embalming and burying. When I first read Genesis, I thought, whoa, what, what? this is an important book. Why does it end with all this dying and putting people in the ground? I didn't have much delight in the ground in the way that God does. 
But Genesis 50 is God with Jacob, God with Joseph, God with his people whom he will carry up from Egypt. And this is the bridge from Genesis to Exodus and the word given to Moses during the Exodus to give God's people hope. Let's look at these last verses in Genesis 50. Got to move fast. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Genesis 50, 22. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely uh, visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Uh, I don't have time to go into all of the verses on your outline. I've noted Exodus uh, 13, 17 through 22. In 13 of Exodus verse 19, it reads, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry my bones up from here. And the Lord, by the pillar of cloud and by day and the pillar of fire by night, was present with his people, a presence of God promised. And God's presence is not only with his people on the journey, but in the place that they go to where God will once again dwell among his people. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 99. Uh, listen to just the first five verses. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Verse 2, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Where are the cherubim in verse 2? They're in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, on top of the mercy seat, the cherubim. And the earth should tremble because God has entered into the earth and has focused his attention on a people and will bless everybody who blesses that people and discipline everybody who hurts them. And for a wonder fully long season of Israel, uh, that was true. And still, as Paul says in Romans, has truth in it. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Everything about that psalm is about God's presence. Do you really believe God is present in special way amongst his church? We ought to. Scripture has plenty to say about that. And Psalm 99 is all about his presence. And I love the Hebrew of the second part of verse 5. It literally stutters. It's worship at his foot footstool. If we put it into English, it has to be worship at the footstool of his feet. Well, I mean, what else is a footstool for but the feet? Except I think the image that is there from that Hebrew text is not like when you sit in your easy chair at home and you have a footstool with your legs straight out. It's that the only thing of God that fits in the temple is God's feet. The whole temple, Herod's glorious temple, is nothing but a footstool because God can't dwell in buildings made with hands. But the glory of the God who created everything has humbled himself and comes to deal with us. And the ultimate place 
of God's dwelling is in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, the fullness of the Spirit is given, which is why Jesus is so amazing and so wonderfully desirable in some ways, and yet the world fears Him appropriately. There are good reasons that there are times I want to run away from Jesus. You know, one of the mistakes we make is we sin big and we don't pray. We run away from Jesus. We sin in one of our besetting sins and we stop reading the scripture that week. And we don't go back to church the next week because we sin. That's really smart, which being otherwise interpreted means that's really stupid. Because you're going to get so righteous in the next two or three weeks that now you're worth going back into God's presence. Stupid, stupid, stupid. You're never worthy of being in God's presence except by His grace. And that's the final bookend uh, of Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Hear it again. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, a water in the garden, a water in the ultimate garden, in the new heavens and the new earth, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Where's the water come from? From the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Whoa, 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 one tree of life, but now we got a tree that's on both sides of the river. With twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The whole creation is being healed. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, they will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. We come into God's presence only by trusting in Christ, who bore his judgment in our place, who gives us new creation life by new birth. We fellowship in his presence, in his body, his church, which he gathers as God's good news is proclaimed. God has been faithful to his people for a long time, and he's not going to stop. Let me close with these words from John Calvin. Some people think of God as if he sits hidden in a watchtower on the battlefield of time. Stephen, thanks for all the battlefield songs this morning. Waiting anxiously to see if what men and nations do will fit in with his plan and purpose. That's how a lot of people see God. Calvin says, Thus God's plan would be contingent upon what men and nations do. But the scriptural truth and teaching is far more than that. God acts before the nations act. He has determined from the beginning the course of their history. I said to you once before, don't think fatalism you start thinking fatalism, you don't understand how big God is. You're making God small as if he's like us. God is so big that he can work his plan through the choices that believers and unbelievers make. And he moves in the hearts of those he's drawing to himself to respond with hearts of grace and forgiveness. And that's why we come to the Lord's table this morning.